This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. This is E-Factor Radio, created by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. And now here's your host, David Wolf. Hi, I'm David Wolf, and welcome to E-Factor. Our guest on this segment says we need a social economic model that addresses the contradictions of capitalism while preserving its productivity. And he argues for an ancient yet emergent economic model that he calls service and selflessness. August Tarek has integrated his lifelong passion for personal and organizational transformation with a highly successful career as an entrepreneur, consultant, and executive with a variety of companies like MTV Networks, A&E Networks, United Press International, Bell Atlantic, and others. Often described as a worldly monk, Turek combines the hard-edged discipline of a bottom-line leader with a passionate commitment to putting people first. Joining us on the line from his offices near Raleigh, North Carolina, is August Turek. August, welcome to the program. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you. You've got an incredible story, I know, that uh, led you to become the protege of the legendary uh, leadership visionary, Louis R. Mobley, who uh, founded the IBM Executive School. If you would, share with us the story that led you to the work you're now doing. Well, I sometimes give talks uh, based on one of my overriding principles, which is to aim past the target. You know, in, in life, we're told to aim past the rim if we want to make a basket we're aim for the back of the cup and in archery you're told to aim past the target so when i was a young man uh i was kind of a seeker and i was running around looking for the wisest people that i could possibly find i used to go to bookstores uh when i came to a new town and i would get to the manager or the owner and i'd say who are the coolest people in town who can teach me something yeah. One such bookstore owner in Washington, D.C. said, well, you've got to meet this guy, Louis Mobley. And uh, he gave me the telephone number, and I called the guy up. And Lou, I answered the phone with his George accent and listened to me for a minute and said, come on out. Um, so he drove out to his biggest state that he had outside of uh, Washington. He was retired by this time. And I ended up uh, meeting him, just uh, didn't even know he was, had anything to do with business or anything like that. I just thought he was a wise man or heard he was a wise man. And I ended up staying up all night, like 12 or 14 hours we talked. And I was so blown away by him that about a year later I called him up and I said, Lou, I said, I'd like to make you a proposition. I said, uh, how about if I come uh, and find clients for your little consulting firm that you've formed since you retired? And I'll do that for free. In exchange, all I want is for you to teach me everything you know about the IBM Executive School and that you founded and everything. And, and Lou said, uh, I'll go you one better. He said, you can move into my house. We'll meet every morning in my 
study and I'll tutor you one-on-one. He said in the afternoon you can find us some customers, and, uh, but I, I insist on paying you. Wow. So I ended up moving in with, I call these things happy accidents in life, uh, yes. and I ended up moving in with Lou and his family, and he tutored me on everything he knew about business and so much more. This is extraordinary, and we can't do it possibly in a segment this long, but if you could crystallize for us what it was about Mobley that made him so incredible as a leader, uh, different from anyone else you'd ever met or encountered in business or otherwise. Well, not you know, starting flat out, the two, the two things that I always look for in, in, in people, first of all, you know, he was just really brilliant, and, um, yeah. and the second thing was he was honest. I mean, he, he was the real deal. He was a, you know, I still know he's, he's passed away now, but I still stopped in to see his wife not too long ago. And uh, I still call her mom. <laughs> She's in the now. And, <laughs> I love that. Uh, I lived in their family, you know, and, yeah. uh, and her kids all came over that I, that I knew when I, back in those days. And I got together with the whole family. And so they were just good, honest people. And so Lou taught me a lot about how being a good, honest person, combining with the smart ideas he had, could, it was so critically important to success. And the other thing that I that I that I could go on, like you say, we could talk for hours just about Lou Mobley and what I learned. But yeah. Lou made some, you know, at this stage of my life, and I was looking at my own life personally more so than I was as a business person. I was only in my twenties, and Lou told me two critical things. He said, number one, he said the huge difference. He said he almost failed running the IBM Executive School because they didn't understand a simple point. Now, he was, this is 1956, and they were just getting into this whole idea of, of development of executives. Sure. He might have been the first. And he said um, they, they thought that, uh, that, that being a successful executive may be more efficient. In other words, it was identified with skills and knowledge. And he found out, thank the Lord, that it wasn't. What a, the, he said a manager gets things done. An executive decides the things worth doing in the first place. Uh, this is an entirely different set of, it's not even a skill, really. It's values and attitudes. It's creativity. Uh, and going from a middle manager to an executive, he said, is not incremental. It's not like read three more books uh, and write a paper, and now you're an executive. Um, no, it's a complete revolution in consciousness. Uh, it's a complete different orientation uh, in so many different ways. Uh, and... Uh, and so that was what was critical. And then, then the next thing that Lou taught me is that if you're going to bring about this transformation in consciousness, whether it's individually, organizationally, you do it through ex- experiential-type techniques. You can't lecture or didactically teach somebody this. They have to go through the process, so to speak. Um, and so the IBM Executive School became 12 weeks of completely experiential simulation games Things like that. No lectures, no books, no textbooks, no nothing like that. Um, and these were very. These were, I think, critical principles that uh, that Mobley taught me that I later uh, brought into my own life and into my own work with businesses and my own business. I founded my own corporation. Absolutely, August. I wanted to drill into that. You, uh, it's known that you started a business well on a relative shoestring and turned it into an amazing success. Just tell us how what your approach looked like. Uh, bootstrapping a business like this, uh, what the business did, and tell us, give us the arc of that experience, if you will. Well, would. it wasn't a relative uh, shoestring. It was a shoestring. It was absolute uh, shoestring. It was an absolute shoestring. <laughs> it was an absolute <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> Very important point. I, mean, I did insert that word, didn't I? Yes. Yeah, we, we decided that we were going to put enough money, me and my three partners, we're going to put, we were going to put enough money into uh, the business for the first month's rent, and uh, that was it. And it was about uh, 700 bucks or something. 
that's all the money we ever put. What was what was the business itself? Well, that's the that's the interesting part. Is you want to drill in? Um, our business plan was uh, my my uh, my partner David Gold looked over as we were putting the company together. He said, "Well, our business plan is we're smart guys. We're going to figure out something to do." So the actual matter of fact, going back to Mobley with values and attitudes, we formed our company based on a, a list of values that we were going to believe in. Yes. Um, things like we were going to keep our promises to each other. Uh, we were going to treat ourselves and each other and, and customers fairly. Um, that we were going to work harder uh, than anybody else. Things like that uh, were the basics of our, our... And we went out looking for something to do. Now, again, through a series of happy accidents. Now, we knew, roughly speaking, that with my background at that point in software and in entertainment and communications and things, that we're going to try to leverage that in a general way. But besides that, we had no business plan. And through a series of happy accidents, we started out as a resellers of other people's software and eventually created our own software um, and in the developer's tools business, which, interestingly enough, I knew nothing about when we got into it. Hmm. These are programmers' tools that you sell to programmers to make them more efficient in their programming. Okay. And I actually knew darn not too much more about it when we exited seven years later when we sold the company to an Israeli company, um, which was later bought by BMC Software for $150 million in cash. So um, we just put uh, general business principles together with the idea that uh, as... Tom Peters said way back when, business is really just making things and selling things. And if you plot really good principles. Um, but I think the secret to our success in so many ways was told me by a vice president of a company that had just done a huge favor for us, much bigger company than us. And for no apparent reason, and I was very, very blown away, and I thanked him profusely, and then I finally asked him why he did it. He said, oh, you forget about it. It's easy to do good things for good people. Uh. And uh, this, is all, this is all part of the metamorphosis into my current philosophy of service and selflessness and how that applies to business and, and all that kind of stuff. Yes, yes. Uh, good things happen to good people. And living the right kind of life, whether it's personally or business, is going to pay off for you. We're visiting with August Turek. He's, the, uh, he's an author, speaker, and consultant. The website is www.augustturek.com. Of course, I edit Turek is spelled T-U. R-A-K. Thank you. T-U-R-A-K dot com is the spelling. Is there a story you want to share behind the, the process of selling this business? Uh, as, I, as I look at the materials and prepping for this, it, it appeared there might be something that, that helps shape your entrepreneurial philosophy. Well, yes, indeed, because um, uh, what happened was there was an Israeli company that we were doing some business as a reseller with. And we were actually exiting the reselling business because we designed our own product line. So we were reluctant to get involved um, any more deeply than we already were. And we were there. We were still selling uh, a lot of product for this Israeli company. So the CEO asked if he could stop in and see if he could influence us to sell more. And when he walked in, he was flying from New York to Silicon Valley. And he made a, a quick trip to Raleigh, North Carolina, so he could spend an hour and a half with me. And when he walked into my office, the very first thing he saw on my, on my desk was a book of Chekhov's, Anton Chekhov's short stories. And he said, do you like Chekhov? And I said, well, I love Russian literature. I was a Russian history major. And he said, I'm Russian. He was an emigre from Russia to Israel. And I said, I, I greeted him in Russian, and I speak a little bit of Russian. And, and the next thing you know, we spent the next hour and a half talking about Russia and Russian literature and Russian philosophy and all this stuff. And so we were best friends by the end of the hour and a half, and I drove him to the airport, and 
He said, you know, we didn't talk any business. He said, and I said, yeah. And he said, well, I'll be back in uh, New York in about two weeks. Why don't you fly up and we'll do it then? I said, okay. And so I flew up and met him at his suite. And uh, we spent four hours talking about Russia and Russian literature and Russian history. And he said, you know, we're not getting anywhere fast. And I said, no, we're not. And he said, well, why don't we just buy your company? <laughs> so the next, thing I, the next thing I know, where I'm, on my, I'm flying first class to Israel. And so when I tell this story, and you know, we ended up closing on the deal on March 31st, 2000, which ended up being very, very propitious because, of course, the market crashed about six weeks later. Yes. And, um, and I always tell people this is an example of what I call happy accidents or something that happened as a result of aiming past the target. And um, does that mean that everybody who wants to sell their company should be an expert in Russian history? No. But my, on the other hand, what I learned from Mobley is that most people in business uh, don't realize that the vast majority of things that are going to influence that business as you get uh, bigger and bigger is, are happening outside your business. Mm. Understanding the world and understanding human nature and thinking big enough. Uh, and that's what I mean by aiming past the target. So almost everything, when I look back over how I met Mobley or how I sold my company, uh, these are all uh, looks look like accidental things. How I got my job at MTV. People used to ask me all the time, you know, "How did you get in?" You know, you must have, what what radio and television school did you go to to get sure, your job at MTV sure. when it was starting out? No, I never went to radio and television school. Yeah. So there's a way of attracting these happy accidents to you, um, so that all these seemingly coincidences happen, um, and that's one of the things that I try to help uh, other people bring into their own lives. Perhaps a good segue to uh, your encounter with Trappist monks, which I uh, admittedly know absolutely nothing about, so this will be fascinating. What are the Trappist monks, and, and how, how, how did they shift or change your approach? Well, um, I've always have had a lifelong interest in, in interest, lifelong interest in spirituality. As a matter of fact, that's what I'm really focusing on right now, because so many books like Megatrends 2010 and Dozens of other ones are saying that spirituality is going to be the business trend of 2010, of the 21st century, I mean. Yes. And people are, you know, so what does that mean? How do you, how do, you do that without going religious? And yeah. how do you apply that and all that stuff? So I've had a lifelong interest in that. And in 1996, I actually went um, for <clears throat> personal reasons to visit a Trappist monastery. The Trappists are an offshoot of the Benedictines. The Benedictines were founded back in the... 5th century by St. Benedict, and this is the monastic tradition within the Catholic Church. This is the contemplatives who live in a monastery um, and uh, dedicate their lives to serving God and serving other people. And I went down and was blown away by these guys and started coming down a lot and became what is called a monastic guest, which means that I can live with them and wear, they give you a, a little habit to wear, and you live with them, and you live their entire life. You work with side by side. They do manual labor to support themselves. And uh, you live their, their entire life. But what, as a businessman, what gradually got, and I wrote this up for an article that was published by Forbes magazine on Forbes.com in a four-part series called Business Secrets of the Trappist. I became intrigued by how these guys became, how a couple of dozen uh, guys with an average age of about 70 working four hours a day in silence um, managed uh, three or four multi-million dollar businesses. Remarkable. Uh, how do they do this? What is the secret to their success? And so I sat down and wrote this in an article called Business Secrets of the Trappist, and Forbes published it, and it was a huge, huge hit. I'm now turning that into a book. Now. Very cool. Expressingly, uh, 
what are the big the big secrets to their to their success. And one of the major ones is is having a high overarching mission that is worthy of being served, and it becomes so inspirational that uh, there's you know the monks focus passionately on on their work, and they're not looking over their shoulders playing politics all the time, which is one of the things that I see so much in business. Yes. So the focus on the mission, the overarching values-driven mission. Exactly. You know, on the stuff that's too many corporate executives think is the soft stuff. As I said in the article, I said, the problem is not, I said, you can't really get any more motherhood and fluff than a higher overarching mission that says serve God uh, by serving other people. Um, you can't get any higher than, and more mushy than that. So it's not a question that yet the monks managed to take that mission and fanatically turn it into an egg business or a fertilizer business or a timber business uh, with, an, uh, with unbelievable results. So the problem is not what so many corporate people are talking about, that, oh, my God, all these corporate missions are fluff. No, it's not that they're too abstract or they're too high-minded or whatever. It's because they don't have the follow-through to fanatically connect this high overarching mission to the smallest details of their organization. It's a manage. It's a it's a a flaw in the commitment of management to make up so that people who are working in the mailroom understand exactly how they're contributing to the mission and why. Um, we just want to write down a, a mission on a piece of paper, stick it in a drawer, and forget about it. And that's not the way it works. You got to live it. And that is one of the major. You know, it's one of the, another one of the points that I made. What is the secret to the success of the Trappist? They live the life. They live it. Um, and one of the things they live is that they have faith. And by faith, I don't mean that they have faith that M- Mary was uh, a virgin or something like that. That's because they have faith that if they live the right kind of life, that things are going to take that things are going to work out for them. It's that same thing that I was talking about when things worked out for me. And I asked why, and somebody said, "Well, it's easy to be good to good people." <clears throat> so um, it, you know, the difficult thing the rest of us have is that when things get tough. And we can't see exactly how doing the right thing is going to be- benefit us in the, med- in, the, in the short term. We fall off the wagon and we try to take shortcuts. Um, the monks never do that. And as a result, they build up an enormous amount. It's another one of their traits. They build up an enormous amount of trust. Uh, every, I was coming to the uh, monastery one time and I got stopped for speeding. And when I told the judge that I was going my way to the... This was an hour and a half away from the monastery in a Baptist... Uh, heaven, and yeah. uh, when I told the judge I was on the way to the to the monastery, he dismissed the case. Uh, the well. reputation is so incredible that it bleeds into everything, including getting me out of a speeding ticket. Um, so the the it, it this takes so much friction out of their business. Uh, their their suppliers trust them, their customers trust them, people like me who go down and volunteer to help them trust them. Uh, it, it is a tremendous, tremendous asset that they have. And, it, and I, as I say in the article, trust is such an incredible asset because it's unlimited, too. There's no limit to how much you can have. It's not a limited resource. It's an unlimited resource. But the problem with trust is that once you, uh, once you, once you file up, it, it's, it's sometimes impossible to get it back. As we fold in for our audience here, too, the idea of service and selflessness, the transformation that you took away from this period with uh, the Trappist uh, experience you had. How does it fold into the entrepreneurial experience? To me, I define service and selflessness as a management model, and I define this management model as bringing about not so much, what the monks do is bring about not so much a change of mind. Um, It's not that, you know, it's not trivial, but it's not that hard to change people's minds. What's incredibly hard is to change their hearts. 
And so what the monks are involved in is, is all kinds of disciplines and methodologies that, that I believe can be transferred to the outside world, which change people's hearts. And after this tra- change of heart, what is the difference? Well, the difference is that you come to understand at the very core of your being that it is in your own self-interest to forget your self-interest. And this is what I mean by service and selflessness. Okay. Now, let's apply this to business um, and entrepreneurship, but let's go even a little bit more granular and apply it to sales. I've been in sales all my life. I've trained salespeople. I work with salespeople. I know everything there is to know, more than I want to know about sales. What is the secret to sales? The secret to sales is to forget your product, forget your commission plan, forget your quota, forget your goal, and focus fanatically on helping the customer. If you forget yourself and, and focus fanatically on taking care of your customers, <clears throat> you, the, the, uh, the, the product, moving the product, hitting the goal, getting the commission will take care of itself. In a religious sense, if you want to put quotes around it, if you're not religious, and Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else will take care of itself. Yeah. To me, this kingdom of heaven is the, is the customer and worrying about, put, worrying about the customer fanatically. Uh, and so when I say this, the interesting thing, when I talk to salespeople, they all nod their heads, but then they go right back to behaving in the old way. So the important thing is, and this is true of an entrepreneurial um, startup. One time when I was started my company and we were, there was only four or five of us working, we came to work uh, when there, in an ice storm. And, uh, I mean, it was ludicrous because it was six inches of ice, and it was funny how we got to work. We had to walk most of it. And we worked the next couple of days when the whole city was shut down. And I went to the gym, and there was a guy I knew who was working for the state government there, and he was, work- he was working out in the middle of the day. And I said, Greg, how can you be working out in the middle of, of the day? Uh, and he said, we're still off. We're not, we're, we're not going to work. And I said, you can, go to, you can come to the gym, but you can't go to work? I said, we've been working since we, Monday. We, we came to work on the first day of the month. He's, and he got mad. And, you know, he was, I was prodding him, and he got a little irritated. And he turned to me and says, you don't care about your people. If you cared about your people, you wouldn't have come to work in, a, in an ice storm. And I turned to him, and I said, Greg, I disagree. I said, we care tremendously about our people. They just happen to be called customers. <clears throat> um, because we have customers all over the country who are not in an ice storm, and they need to be taken care of. And this different orientation between the way he looked at, at, at um, life through the prism of working for the state and what I, how I was looking through it through the prism of how the, the monks would look at it, that the sacrifices are worth it uh, and they work you know, to, to, to work for other people made all, makes all the difference in the world. And this is what I mean by uh, service and selflessness and really, really understanding that it is in your self-interest to forget your self-interest. The more, for example, that I became secure in, in my own life, and more I began to enjoy other people's success rather than my own success, the more successful I became. August, does, does all of this, and I'm guessing it does, but does it translate to the macroeconomics of, of the planet as well? Absolutely. I mean, what I'm, what I'm talking about, when I, I, and I wrote about it, I said, if you look back over the 20th century, you know, what you see is a uh, a disappointing series of experiments in nationalism, socialism, fascism, communism, you know, go on and on and on. And then finally, when Reagan came to office, you know, that was supposed to be the final victory of capitalism. Now, here we are 25 years later, and everybody's questioning capitalism. But the biggest thing I see is just this overarching sense of where do we go from here? What's next? You know, if capitalism isn't it, what are we going to do? Uh, we seem to have run out of answers. Well, to me, I'm talking about transcending capitalism. And what I mean by I'm 
transcending capitalism is holding on to the things that have proven so incredibly productive about capitalism. Because indisputably, capitalism has brought, has brought more people out of poverty than any other economic system we've ever tried. However, how are we going to take care of the, incon- the inconsistencies uh, that cause so much of our trouble? And the, inc- and the fundamental inconsistency that I see in capitalism is that Adam Smith was only half right. Yeah. And he's, because he was half right because he said we are selfish, and the invisible hand of capitalism reflects that selfishness. But what he didn't understand is that human beings are not a static model that are going to be always selfish, but they're also a dynamic model that can become less selfish. And capitalism is less selfish than mercantilism, and mercantilism is less selfish than the feudalism that came before it. So we're all on an arc towards, uh, and every child starts out screaming, me, me, me. They're very, very selfish, but we all as individuals become less selfish than that. So what I'm talking about is that capitalism needs to have, our economic system has to have the same change of heart that the monks go through, that I'm talking about salespeople going through, that I'm talking about businesses going through, so that when we get to a critical mass of people who understand one simple principle, that it's in our own self-interest to forget our self-interest. Warren Buffett is the richest man in the world precisely because his reputation for integrity has allowed him to do things that, no, that nobody else could do. He buys companies all day long for $800 million that would go for a billion on the open market because people prefer to sell to him because they know he's not going to take advantage of them. He understands that it's in his own self-interest to forget his self-interest and act in a very, very principled way. Um, and when we get to a critical mass of people um, uh, in, in, in economics who understand this, then we're going to have a ch- capitalism itself will have a change of heart. August, as we uh, close out this segment, tell us about the work you're doing now to uh, further the uh, philosophy, the ideas, and, and uh, disseminate this kind of thinking, this kind of philosophy to entrepreneurs uh, worldwide. Well, I'm, uh, first of all, I'm doing a lot of speaking and, and, and interviews and things like that, like working with you today. Um, I'm speaking, I'm doing a lot of uh, I'm in high demands. Uh, Thankfully, in a lot of corporations, I do consulting uh, and workshops and things like that. I also have a website, and I'm doing some, doing some writing. And uh, the way I'm really positioning what I'm trying, what I'm doing, and a lot of the things that we've talked about today is this is the general. This is I want to put bones. We've got this. We got all these people saying that the 21st century is going to be the spiritual. Spirituality is going to be the the biggest business trend. But what does that mean? I mean that and that and two bucks will get you a cup of coffee. I mean. Uh, first of all, we know we can't go religious. If we start talking about religious, that's going to kill us. And on the other hand, if we go too wishy-washy and just say, oh, just be nice to each other, what value is that? So what I'm really trying to do is help companies and individuals uh, translate uh, this trend that I think is already well underway and, use and, and be able to leverage this in their marketing, in their sales, in their, in their management uh, business and give them real-life examples in real-life ways in which this can materially affect the bottom line and make for a more productive company, not just some kind of uh, a motherhood and fluff, you know, tree-hugging kind of thing. We all want to be nice to each other. There are real business bottom line implications uh, to this trend towards spirituality, and I'm helping companies and individualities maximize uh, 
leverage this trend. And it sounds like it points back to the experiential kind of learning that you talked about earlier exactly. in this segment. Yeah. Precisely. Beautiful. Well, I hope we can do this again. We've been visiting with August Turek. He's an author, speaker, and philosopher around all things uh, in the world and, uh, of course, uh, around business and entrepreneurship and sales as well. www.augustturek, T-U-R-A-K.com. August, thanks for joining us on the program. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to E-Factor Radio. Get more podcasts with your premium membership at efactor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.